0: You realize you're venturing into uncharted waters Yeah, tudo bem, nashkc, e sí. você. Tudo joia meus amigos, doing it the Brazilian way. Capoeira, Bossa Nova, Ronaldinho e Pele, Carmen Miranda, Caiparinha, Curichaba, Recife. Uma cona mia complicada, take ya up to Corcovado. Inside the favelas or in the barra with the fellas, it's a land of extremes. The mighty Amazon streams right through the Floresta all the way to the sand in Bahia, to Olinda, Ubatuba, Macio, or the pampas and Minas, Campo Grande, Mossoro. 22 million trying to survive in Sao Paulo, another six million in their tangas on the beaches in rio orderly progresso so it says on the bandera but not everything so simple out there on the frontera high inflation deforestation unemployment and droughts can this país bonito defy all the doubts about becoming a global leader in a world that's changing fast can it transform its economy and let go of its past we're going to examine the possibilities the keys for success Este train by para brazil Esta investopedia express Welcome back and welcome aboard. Pardon the Portuguese, but you can blame it on Rio. I spent three quick days in that cidade maravilhosa last week, and it's hard to get that beautiful language out of my head, and I kind of don't want to. We're going to take a deep dive into Brazil's economy in just a few minutes, but first, let's get into where things stand in the U.S. capital markets and what's coming down the tracks. (laughs) U.S. equity markets steamed out of the week on Friday with big gains, but not after a choppy few days that brought some steep losses, especially to the Dow industrials. The Dow is actually now lower for the year, but better than expected earnings and a not so dour outlook from Apple may have restored some confidence to equity investors. That and what may have been the last interest rate hike we may see for a while from the Fed and a rebound in regional banking stocks may have calmed the seas for a minute or two. Still, the Dow and the S&P 500 posted their worst week since March while the Nasdaq teaked out a slight gain. That pattern has yet to change. The April jobs reports show that U.S. companies keep hiring and more people are out there working. 253,000 jobs were added last month, well ahead of the 180,000 forecast, and the unemployment rate dipped to 3.4%. It hasn't been that low since 1969. Oh, The job gains were concentrated in professional and business services and healthcare. Those are good-paying jobs. And wages climbed another 15 cents last month and are up 4.4% on the year, right about where inflation is. Now, we know the Fed wants to cool the jobs market and tamp down wage growth, and April's report did not show any progress there. So that might make us think the Fed will raise rates again when it meets 37 days from now. Who's counting anyway? Here's what Fed Chair Powell said Wednesday after the Fed raised rates a quarter percent, but before the jobs numbers crossed on Friday. Friday. Inflation has moderated somewhat since the middle of last year. Nonetheless, inflation pressures continue to run high, and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. Stop me if you've heard that one before. Still, investors aren't convinced that the Fed is going to keep hiking rates. Taking a look at the CME's FedWatch tool, and there's only an 8% probability that the Fed will raise rates again in June. Maybe 5 to 5 and percent is the terminal rate. The very same level where interest rates were in 2007 before you know what happened, which leads us right into our big 3 for the week. Sarcally.
1: Sarcally. Sarcally. Sarcally.
0: Sarcally. Number one, for all the hand-rigging out there about higher for longer interest rates, let's keep a couple of things in mind. The S&P 500 and a lot of other major global and emerging markets are higher amid this rate-hiking campaign by central banks around the world. To be sure, they are rebounding off of last year's sell-off, but you can't deny the resiliency even as investors have other alternatives. And our pal Ryan Dietrich over at the Carson Group reminds us that it's not out of the ordinary for equity markets to rise amid higher interest rates. Looking at the past 10 cycles of higher interest rates going all the way back to 1970, 74, the market was higher eight of those 10 times and up more than 14% on average a year later after the last hike. May 2000 is a notable exception with the internet bubble frothing things up. And 1981 was another outlier amid Paul Volcker's interest rate hike crusade. But 80% is still pretty convincing. And if the Fed is forced to cut rates suddenly, the market might pop with excitement, but the hangover could be severe. Number two, regional bank stocks have unfortunately become the latest favorite chew toy for short sellers. Shares of PacWest Bank were the latest chum for the Sharks, as shares fell 50% last Thursday, pushing them down 86% for the year. Other regional banks, including Western Alliance, Comerica, and Keycorp, were caught up in the grinder too, even as these lenders opened up their books to show that their deposit bases were relatively sound. Analysts who follow these stocks say their finances are in pretty good shape, but the contagion set off by Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic has contributed to a crisis of confidence throughout the sector. KRE, the regional bank ETF that tracks the sector, is down 35% so far this year, but some of the bank stocks inside that index are down far more. According to S3 Partners, which track short-selling, short-sellers have made around $7 billion betting against these regional banks. As if these banks didn't have enough to deal with, given the decline in value of the government bonds they hold against customer deposits, high interest rates which crimp lending, and fears of a recession, their falling share prices cause investors to bail out, which freaks their customers out who pull their deposits, thereby compounding the problem. Regulators and politicians are making noise about short-selling as usual, but short-selling is not illegal, and greed is a hard beat. To tame. And number three, you. How are you feeling? Well, according to our latest sentiment survey, you're about as cautious as you've been all year. Nearly one quarter of respondents say recent events have prompted them to change their approach to their investments, and even more say they are at least somewhat worried about their money. One in three respondents say they expect a decline of 10% or more in the stock market in the next three months, the highest level of pessimism we've seen all year. If concerns about persistent inflation and the Federal Reserve's ongoing rate-hiking campaign weren't enough, these recent bank failures have only added to the uncertainty. While the failures of Silicon Valley Bank, signature and now First Republic Bank are not your top concern, they have added yet another element of uncertainty to recent market dynamics. Inflation, a looming recession, U.S. relations with China, and rising interest rates did top the list of your concerns, as they have all year. What about those recession rumbles? Nearly half of respondents say they believe a recession is likely by the end of this year, the highest percentage to indicate that since last November. That is prompting almost 20% of respondents to invest less in the stock market lately, while only 17% say they are investing more. Nearly 30% expect the stock market to decline at least 5% from current levels, over the next six months. But while there's fear, there's also opportunity. While rising interest rates are among our readers' top concerns, half of our survey respondents say they're using them to their advantage and turning to safer, yield-producing investments like CDs. In fact, certificates of deposits top the list of investment products our readers are leaning into more for the first time since we began our bi-monthly surveys, with 35% of you indicating that you're buying them now. In fact, if we gave you an extra 10 grand to invest today, CDs now match stocks for where you'd put that money. Only 2% of you say you'd buy cryptocurrency with that extra money. Despite the fact that Bitcoin has returned over 80% so far this year, it still feels risky to the overwhelming majority of our readers and listeners. And despite the concerns around regional banks amid recent bank failures, 25% say they opened a high-yield savings account in the past six months, 20% say they are considering it, and another 28% say they are adding to their existing accounts. This, despite the fact that 46% of respondents say those recent bank failures have eroded their trust in financial institutions. And one more thing, are you ready for the robots? Not just yet, apparently. Most of you say you're not even close to ready to letting artificial intelligence programs make your investment decisions. 50% say they would not make investment decisions based on generative AI, while only 7% say they would. More than a third, however, are keeping an open mind about it. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's all about earnings and inflation. We'll hear results from widely held and widely followed companies, including PayPal, Tyson Foods, Nikola, Rackspace, Roblox and Disney, just to name a few. Earnings are coming in better than forecast, as they usually do. And given the rallies and tech stocks in particular, companies in the S&P 500 are trading at about 17.8 times their projected earnings over the next 12 months, according to FactSet. That's above the 10 year average of 17.3. Feels kind of rich, given the fears about a recession. We'll get the latest inflation readings this week with the April Consumer Price Index on Wednesday and producer prices on Thursday. The CPI is projected to have climbed 0.4% last month after rising 0.1% in March. Year over year, prices are likely up 4.9%, the slowest pace of growth in two years, decelerating slightly from 5% in March. Core prices, which exclude those volatile food and energy costs, likely rose 0.3% last month and are up 5.6% on an annual basis. Remember, the Fed wants all these numbers to come down to around 2%. We have a long way to go. The producer price index will follow on Thursday, tracking inflation from the standpoint of manufacturers and wholesalers. Producer prices are projected to have risen 0.3% last month, rebounding off an unexpected 0.5% decline in March. They likely rose 2.4% year-over-year, the slowest pace since January of 2021, decelerating from 2.7% back in March. This Thursday, the Bank of England's policymakers will hold their latest meeting on interest rates one week after the U.S. Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank raise interest rates. Bank of England policymakers are expected to raise the key bank rate by 25 basis points to 4.5%, marking the 12th consecutive rate hike since early last year. The U.K. is experiencing its highest inflation in four decades, currently at an annual rate of 10.1%. The Express steamed down to Rio de Janeiro last week, and I drew the short straw of having to go down there myself and participate in several fascinating panels on investing, banking and software at the Web Summit Rio Conference. Patty and the team at Web Summit put on incredible conferences in Lisbon, Dublin, Toronto, and now Rio, and I am always grateful to participate. This was Web Summit's first year in Rio and South America, for that matter, and it has made a six-year commitment to bring the massive technology and money conference to that magical city. It's all part of Mayor Eduardo Pais' plan to make Rio de Janeiro the innovation capital of South America.
1: Uh, It means to put Rio uh, on the global technology market map. It means making what is already the most iconic and visited city in Latin America into the most dynamic city and the most attractive for human, financial, and technological capital. A place to invest,
0: to innovate, and mainly. To be happy. It sounds inspiring. It sounds reasonable. And who wouldn't want to relocate and live in La Cidade Marveloso? The sea, the cliffs, the food, the caipirinha, Carnival, Bossa Nova, La Joga Bonita, Samba. But Rio and Brazil, for that matter, have their challenges. Brazil is the world's fifth largest country and the second largest in the Western Hemisphere. It's Latin America's largest economy with a GDP of $1.61 trillion, making it the 12th largest economy in the world. It's a massive and diverse country, bigger than the continental U.S. and dominated geographically by the Amazon River and the world's largest rainforest with rich mineral reserves that have been plundered for centuries. It's home to 215 million people, but most of the population lives along or near the Atlantic coast, from Bahia down through Rio and Sao Paulo, Brazil's biggest city and all the way down to Florianopolis. 85% of the population lives in those urban areas, and the income inequality is extreme everywhere you look. Nearly 30% of Brazilians live below the poverty line, and about 17% are in extreme poverty. Brazil's largest exports are soya beans, iron ore, petroleum oil, sugarcane, and meat, and its biggest trading partners are China, followed by the U.S. and Argentina. Corruption, no stranger to any country on the planet, has always been an albatross flying around Brazil's economy, especially its political economy, and its wealth of natural resources are usually somewhere in the mix. Inflation has also been a drag on Brazil's growth, although it's nowhere near the extremes of Venezuela and Argentina. Inflation peaked at 12.1% in April of 2022, which led to a significant monetary tightening cycle that brought interest rates to 13.75% in December of 2022, which is where they still stand today. But Brazil does have a few seemingly good things in its favor. A relatively young population, with the majority of its citizens in the 20- to 40-year-old range, and a relatively low unemployment rate at 8.4%, given its high poverty rates. Its labor force participation rate is above 60%. Still, the challenge of transforming the country's economy especially given the headwinds facing the entire global economy, are muito fuerte, very strong, as they say, down the Rio way.
2: I'm Marcos Casarin from Rio, Brazil. I'm 36 years old and I'm chief economist for Latin America at Oxford Economics. We love Oxford Economics. Such clear perspective
0: on the global economy, but also across asset classes. So if you could, Marcos, put Brazil's economy in perspective today. Post-pandemic, tourism is rebounding. I saw a lot of that, obviously, in Rio, big Tour center. But a lot of headwinds and a growing drumbeat around a recession, not just in Brazil, not just in South America, but around the world. Where are we today as far as
2: Brazil's economy is concerned? Fantastic. I think if we take a long view, it's a picture of an economy that is going backwards. Um, one particular indicator of all the economic variables we look at on a monthly basis, the one that I like the most is Brazil's GDP per capita as a share of the US's GDP per capita. So it gives us a good measure of relative prosperity. If you're catching up, you're, or you're not. And I think the picture is what the data shows is that in the 2000s, all the way up to 2014, 2015, Brazil was catching up really fast with the United States, with advanced economies in general. That came to an end. Brazil had its worst prices in a century, in 2015, 16, there was an impeachment process. A lot of reforms followed this big downturn in economic prosperity, but we just haven't seen prosperity catch up. So we went backwards since 2015. It seems like we stagnated as a percentage of US's prosperity, let's say. And I think now the one term, the one sentence that would qualify Brazil quite well is stuck in the middle income trap.
0: How much of that is related to the pandemic and a lot of the shutdowns that happened across economies, the lack of tourism over the last few years, or is it just that Brazil's economy has just not kept up in terms of developing or maturing into other industries like some other economies we've seen do around the world?
2: So I'd like to separate structural factors from cyclical ones. I think the pandemic was a big cyclical shock, but it was not the worst recession in history for Brazil. Actually, the crisis of 2014, 15, and 16 destroyed more income than the pandemic alone. I think most countries saw their biggest destruction of GDP and income and employment during the pandemic. It was not the case for Brazil. I think the president at the time, Bolsonaro, made huge mistakes delaying the vaccine, but the economic response, not the president's response, the economic policies put in place were largely successful. Brazil managed to recover. Faster than most economies, Brazil managed to preserve some of the the lost labor force. And in general, I think the economy outperformed during the years of the pandemic. And here I'm classifying 2020, 2021 and 2022. But now it's when we see really uh, what the structural changes that have been made, how they will play out into the general economic outlook. And I think the picture is of an economy that is not really doing much.
0: Let's talk about the demographics. It's got a relatively young population in Brazil, relatively speaking, but is it a consumer driven demographic? Does it have spending power any more than it maybe used to? When I look at the demographics, there's a lot of people in the 15 to 65 year old range. That's a pretty wide berth right there. But still, when you walk around Rio and you walk around Sao Paulo, you do see a lot of young people.
2: You do. And I think you're right to a certain extent about the being a young population. But I think in economics, this is an eternal beauty contest. It matters what's happening to you versus what's happening to your neighbors, to your competitors. And Brazil has, in terms of working age population, this stock of people will stagnate, will peak, I think, in the next 10 years or so. Brazil could boost its demographics by two things, three things, essentially. One, increasing life expectancy. I think this is ongoing for Brazil and for most of the world. Second, improving fertility rates. And this is something Brazil's not doing so well. for not having enough kids, not as much or as many as they had before. And the third factor, and I think it tails in nicely with your visit to the Web Summit, is migration. Brazil is one of the closest economies to migrating uh, workers. So if you don't attract human capital from outside Brazil, it's going to be struggle to catch up with uh, with advanced economies
0: well brazil is also traditionally a mining minerals and agricultural economy a lot of people including the mayor of rio is trying to change that he wants rio de janeiro where you're from to be the tech center of south america you're an economist hard to know from Looking at it that way, but what's your perspective on that? Do you think that's a possibility? Rio a lovely city, great people, but it's also not the easiest place to get to. And do you think it could attract that kind of talent? Because a lot of talent, as I understand it, a lot of young people moved to Sao Paulo several years ago or to other cities across South America where they might have a better uh, standard of living.
2: So I think uh, it's true. Rio experienced the brain drain mostly to Sao Paulo and to places outside Brazil. And if we want to have a fair chance at becoming the tech capital of South America, of Latin America, I think we need to urgently change legislation, change the approach towards migrant workers. I think that's one. But I think there are more difficult things to change. I think one of the reasons why Brazil as a whole is underperforming the rest of the world is a lack of investment. And you you can only invest There's this economic identity that you can only invest what you save. Otherwise, you need to be borrowing from the rest of the world all the time in a systemic way that's not going to take you very far. So Brazil has a problem of very insufficient savings. Like companies don't save enough, people don't save enough. I think you mentioned it, it is a consumer population. People love to consume, but the more you consume, the less you save. So I think to solve this problem into the future and to make Brazil a real candidate to outperform and to become the tech capital of the world, you need to attract the right people, you need to save and invest more, increase R&D investment, push down the cost of capital. Somehow interest rates are very high. They're high because inflation is also high. So I think sorting out the macroeconomics, the stuff that I tend to look at the most is only the first step. But beyond the macro, you still need to do lots of things. and. I think it's encouraging to see that Rio is going to host the summit for another few years. And I like the intention, but I think behind the intention, there needs to be proper policymaking to accompany that as well. I think what makes it tricky for Rio, for Brazil in general, is that, it, as you said, it's a place that is not so easy to get to. It's quite violent. So urban violence has not gotten any better. I think Sao Paulo's violence scene improved a lot and I think it attracted the right people, the right people willing to spend their money and to earn their money there. I think violence in Rio still puts off a lot of investors. And in general, Rio's economy is much more dependent on exogenous factors than other places economy. So it kind of handicapped its own development. Let's go back in history. Rio was the capital of Brazil for 400 years. In the 60s, Brasilia came in, the capital was taken away. Alongside the capital, a lot of rich and influential people left. All the politicians, all the embassies, everything kind of left Brazil. In the 90s, the stock market went to Sao Paulo. And what was left was the oil and gas sector and the tourism sector. So while violence puts off tourism on a relative basis, I think the oil and gas sector is always subject to what's happening to international prices, things that are completely exogenous to Rio. So I welcome the push to diversify Rio's economy. I think this is the right thing to do. We've seen examples of cities that have reinvented themselves. Look at Lisboa, Lisbon in eh, Portugal. It has reinvented itself. It's a lot more young city these days. It attracts the right people, but it had the right set of policies to attract the right set of people and companies. And Rio still has some showing to do in that front.
0: Yeah, not a surprise that Web Summit actually now is based in Lisbon and in Portugal where they have that every year as well. Okay, let's end on a good note here. What are some opportunities or one or two that you think are out there for Brazil and that the country could potentially take advantage of and get it to that next level, make it more investable, make Rio, make the entire country a place where people want to come, establish businesses, grow wealth, grow generational wealth and and build their their futures.
2: I personally like motor racing and I want to make a parallel here. I think Brazil could be starting the race towards net zero around the pole position. I think Brazil has everything it needs to thrive in this world where we'll have to see an energy transition away from hydrocarbons. It's true that oil production in Brazil, especially those in the shores of Rio, continue to increase. That's fine. But it has been increasing elsewhere alongside demand as well. But Brazil has one of the cleanest energy matrices in the world. Over 80% of the energy we produce is actually renewable. It's made of hydropower plants. So in a way, I think I'm quite positive and optimistic with Brazil's catch-up with the rest of the world in the future when it comes to transitioning to cleaner energies. And I think the transition to cleaner energy will bring a lot of opportunities, jobs, new investments to be made, new mindsets. And I, if I, if you want to end in a positive note, I think there's no better way than looking at the ESG transformation that Brazil and the whole world will have to go through. And I believe Brazil is very close to starting that race on pole position.
0: Yeah, We will see. That's a great point. And I love the racing reference. Some great F1 drivers coming out of Brazil, of course. Marcos Casarin from Oxford Economics, thanks so much for your perspective. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Collab.
0: Well, that's an economist's point of view and a very reasonable one. Marcus and the team at Oxford Economics know their stuff. But what about investors who are trying to put money to work in Brazil? Brazil does have sophisticated capital markets across equities, bonds, commodities, and foreign exchange, but that's for the public markets. And at Web Summit, while there are some public companies, most are small startups looking to attract investors, capital, and partnerships. While a lot of them look for venture capital and seed investments the traditional way, some investors are taking a new approach to financing these businesses. New to Brazil, that is, but not new to other major markets. Hi, I'm Gabriela Gonçalves from Nila Capsule. We've been talking about debt, you and I. We had a panel on that yesterday and you do debt financing, but debt in general is kind of like a four-letter word here in Latin America. Why is that and sort of how is that changing as generations sort of grow a little bit older here?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, historically, we've had a lot of macroeconomic instability in the region, right? And I think, you know, anybody would tell you about the three numbers, uh, inflation rates per month that we had in Brazil at some point, right? And of course, that in a dead environment can combine to very tricky situations. But those are stories from, you know, my parents' generation, like literally from our generation, we haven't had that kind of, you know, impact. And of course, you know, we've come into a very much more. stabilized macro situation. And of course, you know, all of those things combined are bringing a much more stable environment for debt to grow and for, you know, the younger generation of entrepreneurs to actually understand what the benefits are without having the added risk that, you know, the longer, older, you know, generation had through all the instability that we were going through.
0: There is good debt and there's bad debt, as we discussed. But Good debt can be very useful for a company trying to scale, but it's also getting over that psychological hump of debt is not necessarily a bad thing if used correctly. What do young entrepreneurs and just people in general, even investors, need to know about debt and how to use it appropriately?
1: Yeah, I think when you say about bad debt, right, I think that a lot of people have this uh, in their back of their heads that debt is a less resource, right? And I think what we try and bring in terms of information for, you know, the startup community and this new generation, you know, bringing in and, you know, growing companies is that debt actually is a very powerful tool for you to leverage and grow your company and it needs to be used strategically right because i mean it's one thing for you to actually you know be on that last minute that, that you do need debt and sometimes you do and sometimes that is your out and sometimes that is your option. But if you actually put debt into your strategic planning in the beginning of the year, figuring out how much money you're actually going to need, where that money should come from, where that money going to use, what that money is going to cost and actually think about it as a whole in terms of financing and looking at it from a broader perspective of, you know, that equilibrium, you know, the famous, you know, capital structure. I think that is the right point for these companies to be looking at and actually thinking from that from the beginning and how they can use use it to actually grow their business in a better way.
0: There are hundreds, maybe thousands of companies here, a lot of young companies here trying to break through into the Latin American market and even into the global market in general. But when you look and you know this marketplace well, and you've been an investor in Brazil for a little bit, what's your sense of the optimism and also the opportunity for a lot of these young companies, whether it's fintech, whether it's AI, whether it's just classic bricks and mortar businesses to be able to grow in Latin America, given demographics and given the appetite of investors and consumers?
1: Yeah, I think, again, Latin America as a whole, but of course, Brazil being, you know, the major part of Latin America in a way, you know, and where most of the economy of Latin America actually goes through nowadays. I think, you know, we see a lot of opportunities in terms of growth for everybody in here. I mean, again, when you go to Europe, you know, you have many opportunities to actually build in new companies, but so much is already built. I mean, when you look at Brazil, we're so behind so much of the stuff that is going on in Europe and the US, and that brings that much more opportunity for actually for you to do things that are going to be transformational for the for the country and they're actually going to put you at the forefront of what's going on in this, you know, business industry and the growth in here. I think in general, again, we're going through a somewhat strange phase, you know, with a lot of uncertainty in terms of, you know, market growth and, you know, is there an economic recession coming and everything else. But historically, I mean, the U.S. has data. We don't have data in Brazil, but I'm sure it would go in the same direction. It startups and new companies they do tend to thrive in you know economic downturns because you know they are more agile companies they are able to change faster and adapt to the environment faster and of course you know when you look at really large companies if everything is doing well you're not really you know going to shake the boat and you know make big changes within your company if you know you're creating the bottom line but when downturn comes you know that's when you look for change and i think the startups are the companies that are bringing that change so you know the different tech technological solution that's actually going to help you substitute a more old school, more expensive, more, you know, intricate solution that's been going on in that company for 20 years. And sometimes in a downturn, that's the opportunity for startups to actually, you know, get that in and actually thrive within also larger companies. So I think for B2B, it's a really big opportunity. Of course, you know, B2C is always, you know, a tricky in, you know, those economic moments. But I think in a way you kind of just need to look and there are opportunities even than on the economic situation that we're seeing right now. So I think we got the privilege that a lot of the companies they can be quite large just by being locally. And I think, you know, in moments again, with the economics going everywhere uh, worldwide, the opportunity to actually be able to be big enough in your own territory is quite important versus actually maybe companies from smaller countries that would need to take the risk of going into an American market right now, or an European market right now, and of course the moment that you don't want to take the biggest risks, right? So I think on the B2B sector, as I said, there's plenty of opportunity for SaaS companies in Brazil to kind of just bring that extra level of innovation and help the companies that have been around in the country for so long actually do that digital transformation and be more efficient and, you know, bring in more profits and actually uh, be the builders of the solutions of what we're seeing for the problems that we have right now.
0: Well, if this conference is any evidence, there's a lot of companies with a lot of ambition trying to attract a pretty big marketplace. But you say Brazil's huge, right? It's not just Sao Paulo. It's not just Rio, though. Those are the big popular cities. This is a country Like the US, it's very different, very diverse across every part of the country so in general when you look at the Brazilian economy and given what you do are you pretty bullish on the future here in the next couple of years for Brazil Uh, and the economy?
1: Extremely and I think as you said I think that might be the biggest challenge for Brazil because you know it's not only Rio and it's not only São Paulo but again in a way the whole ecosystem of innovation and the funding for innovation you know with the VC funds and everything else it's still very concentrated in you know São Paulo, Rio Florianópolis Curitiba and this few cities that, you know, are growing. But the amount of talent and the amount of just sheer, Brazilians are taught to be very resourceful, let's call it in that way, you know, and they have this, i say, worldwide fame for being very resourceful. And we have run into a number of companies in places nobody would imagine with the revenues beyond the hundreds of millions that have done it without any funding, Uh, have done it bootstrapped and have led to very significant changes in their community and even you know nationwide i think if we manage to kind of spread that funding and this environment that we're seeing at web summit here a little bit beyond the whole sao paulo rio stripe i think we can see even so much more growth and so much more potential just you know being brought up
0: great meeting you i hope to see you here next year bring out.
1: well it looks really good i'm hoping to be here next year too
0: Rio and the whole of Brazil are fascinating and beautiful, and I've met some truly lovely people there over the years. If you get a chance to go, vai, vai, you'll love it, and hopefully you'll have a better understanding of the economy of that beautiful country when you do. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week, we're going to let our new pal Gabriela pick the term. Here she is, direct from the Web Summit in Rio de Janeiro.
1: I think it would be leveraging growth. It talks a little bit about how we see the startup opportunity and, you know, and how together with equity, you know, and debt combination, we can actually make that growth be that much more sustainable and bring that much more returns to both, you know, entrepreneurs and investors as well. So I think that really sums up what we look at in terms of venture that in here, in terms of just, you know, bringing together those two types of funding to give the best returns for, you know, all the players in, involved.
0: Muito legal, as they say down the Rio way, and muito obrigado to Gabriela, Marcos, and all the good people we met on this quick journey to Brazil. We'll link to some of the cool talks we saw at Web Summit and all the reports we cited this week. You'll find those in the show notes wherever you get your Express, and on Investopedia.com/slash The Express Podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.
2: So the racco she papa